Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined for a conversation on Kurosawa by my friend Mr. Joseph Bottom and a new conversationalist adding to the roster of the American Cinema Foundation, Mr. John Wilson. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me. Mr. Wilson, it was your mention of Kurosawa's high and low that got us talking and thinking about this and setting up a podcast. So first of all, please introduce yourself for our audience and let me thank you. It's a wonderful opportunity. It's a great first podcast with you. Well, I was the editor of a magazine called Books and Culture from the beginning, which the first issue was in 1995, to the end, which was at the end of 2016. And now I'm cobbling together various editing and reviewing gigs. I first saw this film in 1981 at a fantastic Kurosawa retrospective at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. That was pre-video, pre-DVD, and while there were certain Kurosawa films I had seen a number of times that were on the circuit, so to speak, there were many that I had never seen and was able to see for the first time. And I hadn't seen it for many years when just recently, as you mentioned a few days ago, I, Wendy and I watched it on DVD. Yeah, as we were talking about this, Mr. Bottom, let us know that now it's on Amazon Prime. You can just go online and stream it in a remarkable quality. And of course, we all three of us watched it again in preparation for the conversation. Yet another reminder that if there's one thing to be said for digital technology, it's how easy it is to recover these masterpieces and also to do this sort of commentary on them, to think through what it is that they have to tell us about the world we live in, or at any rate, the recent past, since cinema for better or worse is usually stuck with that. Gentlemen, I think we should briefly introduce our audience to the movie. Mr. Bottom, could you please do a survey of the plot? Well, the plot is based on an Ed McBain 87th Precinct police procedural. Ed McBain was an American mystery writer from the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, and he went on for a long time just turning out these books. And he uh, turned out one called King's Ransom that Kurosawa came across and read, and it forms not the plot so much as the backbone to the plot. Kurosawa paid McBain $5,000 for the rights to film the book, and it's a story in which a very successful businessman on the cusp of a very daring deal has his son kidnapped, and all the money he's collected to make this deal has to go to ransom his son, and then he discovers that it is not his own son that has been kidnapped, but the son of his chauffeur his son's playmate, who is mistaken for his son. And the moral dilemma becomes whether or not he will pay this ransom, which will ruin his business deal. And he is so invested in the business deal that it's going to ruin him financially. In the Ed McBain book, the chief pursuer of the kidnapper is the businessman. And he actually captures the kidnapper himself and gets the money back and the deal goes through. Ed McBain ends on a happy kind of way. Kurosawa tightened the screws on that plot. It's a very divided film. You can see in the movie the police procedural elements that had been in the mystery, especially in the second half of the film. But what happens here is the chauffeur's son is kidnapped. 
after much agony, the shoe executive who was poised to take over his company instead pays the money he had gathered for that purpose to the ransom, and they get the child back. And then in the second half of the film, we have a pursuit by the police of the kidnapper through urban Japan. And then we get most of the money recovered, but it's too late. The business deal has fallen through. King Gordo is bankrupt. He has to start over. And the kidnapper is on Khalid. Yes, you're right. This is a very different version of the story because it forces this very strong disjunction between the high-low worlds of Japan, between this executive who lives atop a hill in a modernist house and everybody else that we see later in urban Yokohama, mostly by night and uh, indeed down into the underworld. It's a shocking contrast and it also forces most of the movie away from Toshiro Mifune and he's why we're all there. He's a great actor, he's in almost every Kurosawa movie people know and nevertheless as impressive he is through the first half hour of the movie he mostly disappears in favor of the police after that. And I think that suggests that the police is the core of this movie because they are what is between the high and the low. They are going to be dealing with law, they are going to be dealing with justice, and they are going to be dealing with somehow making whole again what has been violated in private life. This is the kidnapping of children we're talking about. And of course, it's not just a private crime, it is also potentially highly political since it's about the poor envying and doing violence to the rich. So, as you said, unlike in the novel, we get these extended scenes of police work, of policemen talking to each other about the work they are doing, have been doing, and will be doing as soon as they're done getting their orders. And it is through their eyes that we see most of Japan, and it is through their eyes that we see most of the movie, therefore. As you said, this is a movie split into very different parts and which nevertheless has a strange continuity even aside from the gripping thriller aspect, which is what does this all portend? What is involved in the kidnapping of children? Where might this all be leading? Now, uh, the, the plot outlined, since uh, it was you who instigated the conversation, please, Mr. Wilson, tell us first of all, how how did you think about the the strange setting of the story or the strange beginning we are abruptly taken away from it and it hardly comes back but in the beginning there's an industrial conflict and this entire boardroom intrigue happening well first let me say that while i entirely agree with a good deal that you said about the role of the police i think it's a bit misleading to suggest that the protagonist mostly drops out in the second half. But in any case, I think that, um, for instance, one of the most powerful moments in the movie is the one in which uh, there's the very specific demand for the briefcases of a certain dimension. The police want to plant something in the briefcases, and he goes and quickly retrieves his shoemaking tools and sits down and says, this is where it has to go, and we make a slit here. And 
I would also say that for me, I mean, the, there's so many exceptional moments in the film, but one comes very early on, and that is after the absolutely wonderful opening in which he's outraged at this cheap shoe that the company is wanting to promote. And you feel tremendous sympathy for him, and he is the representative of many good values, craftsmanship, treating people fairly, not giving them a product that's just going to fall apart, and so on and so on. But then there's this sudden twist when the kidnapping takes place. He's initially resistant to paying the ransom because it will spoil his deal. And so at the very beginning, on the one hand, he's the representative of these sterling values, which he really does hold and he really does live out. He's not a hypocrite. And yet, on the other hand, there's a deep tension between those values and his overpowering ambition, even to the extent that initially he says he's just not going to pay the ransom. Rayoki, the poor father of the boy who was actually kidnapped, is just embarrassingly cringing and yet asking his boss to save his son. So that's quite marvelous. You're right. There's a deep conflict in this man between his own family and also the relationship he has with his chauffeur, which, this being Japan, is far more feudal than it would be, of course, in America. So yes. there's a lot of obligation in there. Indeed, the servant hardly dares ask for the life of his child because they are not on a footing of equality in as much as they are obligated to one another. So this reveals that this man is going through a, an incredible conflict that could turn incredibly ugly. He is tempted to ruin family for the sake of business. And so why this would matter becomes important. Gondo, the protagonist, presents himself, first of all, as a self-made man. At 16, he went into the business, into the factory, and he rose yes. to the rank to be an executive with a significant share of the stock, who turns out is preparing or has been preparing for years a leveraged buyout that's just about to become completed. He has risked everything, and so far it seems he has risked well, down to his incredible timing. He's about to become sole controller and right ruler. As you said, he is very good at what he does, and he also, in his pride at what he does, wants to do well by his customers. At the beginning of the movie, he is confronted by the three other executives of the corporation, National Shoes, who want to oust the old owner in order to modernize, which for them means making cheap shoddy stuff that comes in and goes out with the fashion because nobody gives much of a damn about these things. Whereas Gondo thinks that there is an essential difference between putting a hat on and putting shoes on because shoes are a serious thing and the hat is just decoration. This is about taking care of what's good and preferring the useful to the beautiful, which is so often deceptive. He agrees with these other executives that the old man is too set in his old ways and he has no idea what world he's living in, but he disagrees with these other executives that you should be cheating the customers for the sake of profit. His is a kind of middle path. His shoes would be as sturdy as the old shoes were, but as beautiful as people now want shoes to be since Japan has democratized and this makes everything more colorful, more flamboyant. He's right on the cusp of this great achievement he will have earned and now he will rule surely over this massive corporation, the perfect man for the job. Japan needs him. And then crisis happens. 
he is prevented by this kidnapping that is completely unpredictable and at first doesn't seem to have anything to do with the plot. They think his son disappeared and he learns it's not really his son, it's the son of the chauffeur. And now it becomes clear there's a conflict between his own private life and his public ambitions for the future of Japan. And he has to make his choice. As you put it, when once he does make his choice to do what the police want, to do what his wife wants, to do what decency requires, he is suddenly humbled. He's no longer Mr. Executive, he's just another cobbler. He takes out his tools and he does the job to help the police put in some devices into the leather briefcases by which he will deliver the ransom. So that's the change of status that I was alluding to. This man who is a master of the universe in the beginning, as Tom Wolfe had it, all of a sudden is reduced to a far lower station, but in the bargain he has bought something, he no longer has to fear for the life of his own son. He has at least averted this catastrophe. He does owe something to his chauffeur because it was his own son that was supposed to be kidnapped, so to speak, and was spared because the kidnapper confused one child with another because the children keep changing roles in their little play. Which may be a good moment to talk about how American this Japan is in 1963. The kids are playing cowboys and Indians. They're not playing Japanese samurai like we would love to talk about Seven Samurai or Rashomon. Nope, they would love to be John Wayne. So the kids are themselves involved in the future of Japan and in this Americanized future at that. Titus, I want to get off the boat a little bit there in a, several ways. One of which is the symbolism to which Kurosawa was sometimes prone and shows up in several places in this film can be a little heavy handed. Gondo is conflicted and we see him opening and closing the curtains. Gondo is pushed into a corner, and we see him in a corner. Time has run out on his deal when the police finally show up and say they've recovered the money, but it's already too late, and the bailmen are in the house marking up the furniture to sell, and the clock on the mantelpiece rings its chimes of doom. And the cab- This kind of symbolism in Kurosawa can be heavy-handed, or just sort of too overt, and in this film it is, from time to time. I see the kids playing cowboys and Indians in that way. I think it's a little heavy-handed of a moment. It does help the plot along because they're interchanging, and the chauffeur's son gets kidnapped because he has on some of the clothing of the industrialist son. The high and low, the heaven and hell stuff, has sometimes this same feeling of the heavy-handed symbolism. But it's mitigated or downplayed or ignorable most of the time because of the aspect ratio of the film, which is so narrow, so extended in width relative to its height, that that kind of symbolism, I think Durasa would have liked, because we're always looking up at the house from payphone booths throughout this movie, or from the medical intern kidnapper's apartment. But the aspect ratio of the film doesn't give this high-low feeling quite as strongly as it might have. What you do get in this film is a feeling of crowded rooms extended horizontally instead of vertically. Once we go out into the city and the film is supposed to open up, if anything, it becomes more crowded. We get the police station scene, we get the bar scene, we get the street scenes, and everything is crowded together in this frame, which is, Kurosawa is much 
praised for the blocking of the first half of the film, which is set in uh, Gondo's house, and mostly in the living room. And the way in which he moves the actors and positions them is really quite extraordinary. Long takes, too. The suggestion has been made that he would have made them longer, but like Hitchcock in Rope, the packets of film and the cameras had a limit on them. It was only 10 minutes. That was the longest you could make the take. But if anything, the blocking is more extraordinary once we move out into the city because he's got so many moving pieces. Think of the bar scene, for instance, where the kidnapper is sitting at the bar and it's an incredibly busy scene. And yet somehow you never lose focus on the kidnapper sitting all the way across in the bar with a carnation in his shirt pocket. The kidnapper, too, we never see his eyes until he's captured. They're blackened in shadow, then he wears sunglasses. We never see his eyes until that moment when he's finally captured outside the drug addict's house up on the hill. And that, too, can seem overwhelmingly symbolic in a way that, you know, is not Kurosawa at his best. But I do think the character of Gondo, as you've described him, is both more complex and less complex than the pair of you have been talking about him. I don't think he's deeply conflicted. He's got multiple aspects to his character. You know, he presents himself as a self-made man, but when his assistant finally turns on him or tries to betray him, the assistant points out that it was his wife's dowry that got him started in his meteoric rise, that in fact, you know, the self-made man married well. Not quite the picture he wants to present. And in terms of the political theory that I know that you're fascinated by, Titus, it's worth remembering that Gondo's middle way fails. That, in fact, the whole gimcrack world of Japan, which is represented on the one side by the executives who are fighting with Gondo at the shoe company, they win. And the Yakuza who lend him money and show up in a kind of fraught scene, they're winning. And the lower class bar scene, Americanism, that's winning. Gondo's middle way, you know, high quality shoes that represent something of an older Japanese sense of quality and so on, but infused with the modern business sense, that middle way, it fails. It's over. He loses. The gym crack shoemakers win. The kidnappers, the lower class people, they aren't changed by this. If anything, the kidnapper wins. He did ruin Gondo's life. And that means something in terms of political theory that maybe is worth exploring. But in the meanwhile, we see Gondo in an extraordinarily complex and fraught moral situation. But I don't see him personally, apart from that, as any kind of divided or torn character. I'd like to return to the partly picking up on what Jody was saying about the kidnapper and the heaven and hell theme. When I saw this film a couple of times just in the last few days, what struck me immediately was something that I hadn't felt when I saw it and, and loved it many years ago. And that is that it seemed prescient in a way that related to our particular moment. And that has to do with the motivation of the kidnapper. And it's crucial that he doesn't actually represent the low. He's a medical student. He does not have a mansion like Gondo, but he's far from the lower depths. 
And what he feels is this extraordinary resentment, which I think is, uh, in the United States at least, the dominating emotion of the 21st century. And many of the people who express it most uh, passionately are themselves, to use a word that's very much in vogue, uh, privileged. They are not themselves mostly wealthy, but on the world scale, they're privileged, but they feel a tremendous sense of outrage and resentment at inequality. And it seems, on the one hand, to have a clear moral basis, and yet it also seems somehow out of scale. It seems insatiable. It seems off in some way. And I think that the kidnapper is very much, I mean, as you know, of course, Kurosawa was a great reader of Dostoevsky, and there's certainly Dostoevsky in the background of the kidnapper. His motivation ultimately is not clear. It's a kind of rage, contempt. There's a threat of nihilism to it, and the ending is so powerful in that respect. And that, to me, is what is most striking today, watching the film. Not necessarily when it came out, not necessarily even 40 years ago, but for me today, that was the single most striking feature of it. I think you're very much right, and the issue of envy neatly answers to what Mr. Bottom was saying. Why is this third path Toshiro Mifune wants to open for the future of Japan actually foreclosed and he is doomed? Well, it's because he has to face this new reign of equality. What does it mean for a kid who can barely afford the room, doesn't seem to have a family, but is some kind of medical student, so he's not indeed the poor among the poor? What does it mean for him to put himself on the same level as this multimillionaire executive and think that the one being so rich and the other comparatively so poor is an injustice? That is the realm of equality. That comes with the American destruction of the hierarchy and inequality and, of course, also the horrifying military tyranny in Japan in World War II. After it, like it or not, comes equality, comes another world. And in this new world, indeed, the, these sorts of kidnappings of the rich by some poorer people really did happen at the time. And the story of the movie and this reception is somehow tied up with this. Kurosawa remarked in an interview that he wanted to show in this movie that kidnappers are not punished enough, but part of the public reaction was to blame him for his movie encouraging more kidnappings to happen. You see there this fraught character of all social things. And when you portray these things, are you going to help do justice, give people the correct sentiments and strengthen them in their opinions, or are you going to encourage injustice since you portray it, even though it is defeated? It's inherently an ambiguous matter. And this is the new world. It is precisely that the poor could be not only envious, but feel themselves to live in exactly the same world as the rich, and therefore to understand just how vulnerable the rich are. Up there on that hill, a lonely house, but nevertheless somewhere you can just go and snatch a child. To get a bit closer to the character of the kidnapper himself, he works in a hospital, but he murders three different heroin addicts in the movie. <laughs> Indeed, that is that Dostoevsky nihilism that you mentioned. Science and life-giving are not his problem. Science is just a cleverness that lives with his deep self-contempt and his hatred of rich people like Gondo. He would rather use his powers to murder people, because what do they matter? They're miserable anyway. In murdering them, he can reassert some of his self-loathing. He hates himself too. 
He is in some ways as miserable as the heroin addicts are. And he's strangely at home in this underworld of crime, even though he dresses fairly respectably and would seem to live in a respectable world as the hospital. He knows his ways around the underworld way too easily for a respectable person. He certainly can't be as bad off as the 16-year-old Gondo must have been when he went to work in a factory, but on the other hand, he also doesn't seem to even think that there is any access to a world above. Strangely enough, he doesn't think of what in America we'd call social mobility, upward mobility. He thinks that this is a pretty miserable world, this is where he is at home in misery, and yet he cannot stand it, and so he has recourse to violence instead. And indeed, it does seem like maybe he's more interested in humiliating and tyrannizing over this guy for a bit than he is in actually getting the money. Well, Titus, Gondo actually says that early on, that this is all directed at him. This is about humiliating him. And the first time he says it, the police stare at him, or rather, the police look down and don't make eye contact as their way. That's a perpetual commentary in the film, that the police look away or look down as a way of underlining that something peculiar or embarrassing or immoral has happened. Mm -hmm. Something with which the police morally or psychologically disagree. They all look down or look at each other. The first time he does it, the police look away. They don't think that's what's going on. And it does feel unearned at that moment. It feels like Gondo's being narcissistic and self-obsessed. Only later do we find out that it's actually true, Mm -hmm. uh, or at least partially true. There's an element here, Titus, that I think you want to absorb into your analysis, which is how awful the material culture of Japan is in this movie. Everything is Jim Crack. Everything is fake. Everything is ugly. Remember the scenes in the hospital where we see the intern? The hospital is an ugly place with chipped plaster and the floors. The prison looks better at the end of the movie than that hospital did. Cleaner. And in fact, we see prisoners cleaning the floor when we enter the prison. And all the way through, everything's fake. The decorations in the bar the street scenes, the cars even. When they recover the car, it's covered in fish offal. Everything about the material culture of Japan at this moment, Kurosawa is presenting as vile, cheap, and fake. And you even start to perceive it in Gondo's house, the cinder block wall outside, the Japanese fixtures, or, you know, like these um, anti-Makassars over the edges of the sofa, Even the rich are participating in the cheap knockoff material culture of Japan at this moment, which means that the kidnapper is living a fantasy. I mean, he's clearly disgusted by the material culture of Japan, but he thinks the wealthy escape it. And one of the things that Kurosawa does is say they don't. They don't escape it. The material culture of Japan is ugly. It's not found its footing in the post-war world. So it's just aping Americanisms badly. Remember the radio, you said a salsa tune uh, is playing on the radio when the kidnapper sneaks up to the villa where the dead junkies were, the scene in which he's caught. But it's more than that. 
it's the melody of Elvis Presley's It's Now or Never that's playing there. So it's even a very identifiable American melody that's playing on this radio. And we're starting to get the massive expansion of 1960s Japanese commercial industry. But we haven't, we're not there yet. You know, so we see a radio, we see a car, but all through, Japan looks like a really awful place. And Kurosawa means that, I believe. And that's one of the reasons that I am less disappointed than I think I would be by the ending. The scene in the jail between Gondo and the kidnapper, in which Mufuni is, is, does an extraordinary acting job. The kidnapper chews the scenery a little bit, but he does an okay job. Yet, they really don't come to any conclusion. John, I think, was absolutely right to deploy Dostoevsky here, especially Dostoevsky's use of Nietzsche and resentment. Nietzsche uses a French word because German just won't do to, to convey oh. how awful this is. Oh, I'm just agreeing with you. I oh, think okay. that's absolutely, you put your finger on it. This is, the ending is nihilistic, incredibly nihilistic, you know. Gondo's best response is something close to why can't we all get along, which is just no moral solution at all to, you know, encountering this raw Nietzschean resentment and madness that he sees at the jail. So I think if Kurosawa hadn't set us up, let's think for a second about nihilism here. This is quite possibly Kurosawa's most nihilistic film in the sense that we don't get any solution to the moral dilemma of the day. Nothing comes to good. There's no redemptive suffering here. In the, the novel, the Gondo character, the businessman character's decision to pay the ransom works out. You know, he gets his money back just in time. He saves the business. He wins the business. Everything's wonderful. In this one, it doesn't. We don't get salvation from that, or we don't get any reward for the suffering he's gone through. And that final scene is so fraught, but it's not clear what it's fraught with. It's not like we're going to arrive at any solution here. It's just going to be insoluble. And that, in Kurosawa's view, is, I think, the condition of Japan at the moment at which he made the film. Yeah, I think you're essentially right about this, that the more the movie goes on, the more we become aware of how wicked the kidnapper is. We learn at some point that he's a murderer, and we learn later that he's just going to do it again. And indeed, the police decide that the only way to do justice here is to encourage him to commit murder again, so that they can execute him once he's apprehended and arrested and tried and found guilty. That's, yeah, and that's very well observed, Titus. And you've mentioned before, the police don't, for all that the, the kind of central character that the camera focuses on is the very handsome lead detective. The camera keeps has fallen in love with his face. And we keep seeing his profile over and over and over again. For all that, the police do not come off real good in this film. I mean, the police procedural is nice and so on. But they lie to the press, they get the press complicit in this, they seem so indifferent to the murder of the third addict. They know she's going to be killed. The lead detective actually says that in the car. He says, oh, I figured out why he's picked up an addict. And then they, you know, let her die. It's really, the police are not great in this either. No one comes off as a moral hero, it seems to me. 
except for Gondo's decision to pay the ransom. But even then, there are hints that, you know, the that could have been played, as it was played in the Ed McBain movie, for his own advantage. Because the public opinion turns on the executives, and they actually offer him his job back through the weasel of an assistant. What's his name? Kanawashi? Yeah, you know, he's such a weasel. <laughs> and, yep. uh, and he's been Gondo's, you know, protege for 10 years, which is not reflecting real well on him as a mentor. So, you know, I don't think there are any moral heroes in, there, in this film, not even the police. Yeah, it is a very disturbing story. The more so, the more you follow it along. It takes a lot of cinematic art to show you interesting things and uh, to thrill you with this dangerous stuff that comes to solution so that it's bearable. But at the end, you do have to confront this question. You have this crazy evil dude there. The police do secure one important answer for this, that you have to kill the killer. What they had started with was trying to deal with kidnapping, and uh, that turned out, uh, for technical reasons, to be a, a more problematic matter than they would have thought, since the man being extorted, Gondo, is not the man whose child was stolen. It's not, uh, strictly legally speaking, kidnapping for a ransom. But that only serves to show the absurdity, not just of the technical legal situation, but of course of this habit of kidnapping what are at least thought to be the children of the rich. The new world of equality has encouraged this kind of madness that strikes at the heart of the family. And the police initially want to deal with that matter, to somehow make it right again, to secure the family against whatever dangers might come from the underworld. But in the process, things change because now it's a matter of murder, and the justice issue therefore switches from this super rich guy, he's got issues because of the kidnapping, to these poor nobodies who are just junkies. Their murderer is going to be apprehended and executed. That is a very serious shift, and it suggests something about the direction in which justice must indeed turn, from a concern with the virtues of the few to a concern with a minimum of justice for the many, at least saving their lives or avenging their deaths. And this is quite a lowering of the bar. This is no longer a society that can be dedicated to any high ideal. This is not a society where somebody like Gondo can, in fact, thrive and rise to the top. The dead hand of the past is not dead enough, and the greedy hands of the future are, you know, all too successful, as you pointed out. This guy in between is not going to make it. Nobody defers to him. Indeed, his protege betrays him. He had presumed on the old ways because as a man of middle age who had worked his way up through the organization, he remembers a country old enough where deference to hierarchy was first, last, and really everything. But now the hierarchy does not defer. His equals want to destroy the, the guy who actually running the company, not just him, and his own protege sells him out. You can no longer rely on hierarchy, and therefore that entire political system and also the moral intuitions that came with it have to go away. Another world is coming, and in this new world, Gondo is on the one hand somebody you see in the street at night. The kidnapper actually sees him looking at shoes in a shop and goes to ask him for a light just to get up close to see what is he like, what kind of man he is. And he is not much of a man, he's just another guy now. And then indeed at the end, he says he's got a new firm, it's not much, but he's in charge. He's his own boss. He's no longer the boss of Japan, he's just like any, say, American entrepreneur. And on the other hand, he has no idea how to deal with this outburst of wickedness either. 
entrepreneur is the wrong word there. He's an employee in his new job, right? He's been hired to be the factory manager. His days of being an entrepreneur, his days of reaching up to the stratosphere are gone. Yes. Uh, that's good. He's, you know, he's wealthy. You can tell by his good clothes. He's successful in a certain middle class sense of successful, but his rise up into the stratosphere is over. I only interrupt because I really want to hear from John on this. But in that context, I wanted to put before you a question that I think fits with what you were saying, Titus, and yet I don't know quite what to make of it, which is the wife's transition from wearing traditional Japanese clothes in the first half of the film to wearing Western clothes in the second half of the film. I don't know what Kurosawa is trying to signal there, but it clearly fits somewhere in the context of what you were saying, Titus. Yes, I also picked up on this watching this time around, but I hadn't before that the scene in which we first see her in a traditional kimono, she just sees the executives, plotters, the intriguers getting thrown out of the house and she's surprised at this, doesn't know what to make of it. Ceremony actually has been broken. Gondo is not leading them to the door and she asks about this. Everybody's very embarrassed about this. But that, of course, shows you the old Japan, which to some extent Japanese men insisted on after the war too. Sure, the men modernized, everybody ended up in a suit and all that, but they still wanted the women to dress far more conservatively. And this was also, of course, true of the 20s or the 30s or the war years. That changes because Japan is changing, because the world is changing and Japan cannot stop. So it's not just his own ambition to become an important man not just his pride in having married well, but also the insistence on the morality of women. That's a very big deal. To protect women is what is involved ultimately in this issue of kidnapping there. And the special status of women, that is to say on the one hand they did not have rights in any sense Americans might understand, and on the other hand they had certain kinds of privileges American women of course never have nor never will have, that's gone. Even Japanese women are fast Americanizing, as the costumes show, and there is a moral argument given for this in the quarrel in the movie. It is the woman who insists that the ransom must be paid, that the ransom must be paid for the son of the chauffeur just as easily as for her own son. And therefore, you see a new morality of compassion. The morality of excellence is out. Several things that both of you have said make me think of the bad sleep well, which very much goes along with high and low and particularly the devastating portrait of the corporate hierarchy, which has replaced the hierarchy of traditional Japan. And in The Bad Sleep Well is just utterly corrupt. I think that of all of Kurosawa's other films, the one that fits most closely with High and Low is The Bad Sleep Well. And really, you could almost say that they're a pair of films. This is also, Hilo is his last, I was going to say film noir, and that isn't quite right, but it's his last movie in that old kind of format of a mystery police detective tale. You know, and there are some noirish elements here, very strongly, but oh, yeah. I don't know why he would stop that. I mean, the line that you're tracing, it runs through the bad sleep well and on to high and low in Kurosawa's work. This is the end of it. This is where that line stops. And it would be really interesting to ask, is that so because this is a death work in Philip Reef's sense of that word, right? That, that we've reached an end to this kind of filmmaking, he thinks. 
or if the 1960s are going to open up with David Lean and the rest of this kind of epic filmmaking, if something new is going to be opened up for Kurosawa. And I don't know what the answer is, John, but you know, I know the line you're talking about in Kurosawa, and it's curious that it ends with this film, which is his most nihilistic film. I certainly agree that the post-war movies, the ones set in the post-war period, are a very searching criticism of the basis of justice in this new society and of the relationship between trying to rebuild a society and the question of justice, because society isn't reducible to justice. Indeed, as we said, there's so much of Japan that you see that you don't really need to see for purposes of the plot. It's only there because you need to understand what kind of place this is, what the suffering, what the deprivation in Japan is, and what kind of debased tastes it fosters, and also why this somehow makes people powerless, why it makes people unable to function together, and why it is that both at the top and at the bottom of society, all sorts of illegalities and crimes can be perpetrated, not necessarily with impunity, but they're fairly worrisome and in certain cases terrifying. And it does seem that something must change in this society that might indeed do away with this kind of storytelling, that it doesn't have much of a future because of its assumptions. The relationship between private life and public life, the relationship between traditional moral intuitions in Japan and the new political situation and of course the new economy. As this transform, storytelling will take a different form. It will have to fit that situation and the signs that all the traditional things in the story presented or hinted at in the beginning wither away, but especially that Toshiro Mifune is reduced from the status of a modern hero. He's not a samurai general, but he is about to become the leader of a nationally important corporation. And at the end, he's just another middle-class Joe. In the beginning, he seems to be sure about what's right and wrong, what the future of Japan is supposed to be, how you're going to get there, and that he's the man for the job. And at the end, his self-confidence is shaken, he has been humbled, he's certainly not got much of a future ahead, but there just doesn't seem to be much of a future ahead in his terms. That entire world where there was a relationship between honor and greatness, which makes those conniving weasel executives so despicable by contrast, it's gone. Think how Toshiro Mifune in all of the iconic roles that we think of him in, the, the samurai roles in particular, he always seems to be a very tall man. He always seems to kind of rise above. Remember the cute little samurai in uh, Sanjuro who are scurrying around like ducks behind him, right? They're all shorter than he is. You know, they're cast that way. In this film, while in the very beginning, there are some camera angles that look up at Mifune when he's sitting, when he's smoking a cigarette after arguing with the shoe executives, where, you, you know, he's projected as that kind of Citizen Kane big figure. But through most of this movie, he actually seems shorter than the other characters. When he's sitting on the train, the very handsome lead detective is presented as taller than he is. When he's walking into the prison, the guards are bigger than he is. He's presented as a smaller man than we expect Toshiro Mifune to be presented as, in the way that, you know, John Wayne was always presented as this very tall, imposing figure. I don't actually know how tall Mifune was. John Wayne was tall, but Mifune, I don't know. 
But he was always, the camera looked at him as a tall man, a kind of towering figure, even when he's playing the goofy character in Seven Samurai. You know, he's standing in the stream. He seems tall. He seems a presence. Here, this is kind of smoldering going on, but it's not the big man's big-shouldered presence that we expect. He's a full-grown man. He's clearly watched John Wayne to pieces. You know, the way he holds his chest, the kind of successful man's full-chested presentation. But he's presented as a smaller man who can't do the big man's grasp of the whole situation for solution. And I think it's quite brilliant filmmaking, given, as I say, I don't know how tall Mafuni actually was, but given that Mafuni is traditionally presented as this very tall, imposing figure. And here, you know, there's diminishment. Notice, for instance, as we move through the opening half of the film, almost all of which, I think except for the car scene, where you find out what a snake the assistant is, or at least there are hints that he'll become a snake. Except for that, which is right outside the house, I think every shot is inside that living room in that first half of that film. You know, a day passes, and Mifune starts to get this unshaven look. You start to see his beard filling in. He starts looking... Uh, more disheveled. In one part of it, he's taken a shower and he's in a bathrobe. And his hair, which has been perfect before that, is now kind of messy. It's not greasy and swept back with hair treatment the way it had been earlier. Now it's just wet and messy. And that kind of diminishment of the man that's happening through there, it seems to me is very interesting. And a sign, of course, of what a great actor Mifune was, that he could pull this off. Yes, I entirely agree. I would add to it two things. First of all, he's a man in the fullness of his middle-aged powers in the first scenes. At the end, in jail, but even in the evening in the street when the kidnapper asks him for a light, and in between when the police visits him at his soon-to-be-auctioned-off home, he looks significantly older. He has grayed. It's startling to see. And I think this generalizes in a way, and I'm glad you brought up Sanjuro, which is the best example of the alternative view. In Sanjuro, indeed, he is a father to all these loser samurai young men, and he takes care of them, and he is in authority. He dominates them all, and he is always also a few steps ahead of the game. At the same time, here, it's all those young men, in this case the police, that actually get the job done. And he is the one who is powerless in turn. And that's a reflection on the political distinction. There was a time when a man mattered, and nowadays a man doesn't. Institutions might, but men do not. And that is ultimately why storytelling would have to change. There's no room for greatness. That might be a good end point. Well, gentlemen, thank you for joining me, and thank you for the conversation. I think it is indeed fitting to end on a somewhat dour note, but it is a (laughs) great movie, and that's how it ends, and that's what we'll do. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I thought that was very well said. So perhaps we shall talk about the Bad Sleep Well or another one of the modern pieces for another conversation sometime soon. Oh, if John's up for it, I enjoy always talking with John. Um, And, you know, even in this film, there's so much that we left uncovered. The the use of reflections, for instance, you know, at the end, that famous set piece at the end. But the very first time we see the kidnapper, we see him reflected in a polluted body of water as he's walking along a path. We don't actually see him, we see his reflection. And there's, you know, use of reflections all the way through this film. 
we didn't really get to talk about how the modernizing elements of this film, like the toll booths on these American style highways, have people walking alongside them pulling carts, hand carts. You know, that there's this, that Japan is just in this picture is this modernization is odd and ill fit. But all of it, you know, this is the sign of a deep work of art is you, you, you never get to the bottom of it. There's always more to deal with. So any of these films that you guys want to talk about, I'd be glad to join. Yeah, it was a very enjoyable conversation. Well, thanks again, and I'm looking forward to the next one then. All the best, gentlemen. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.